Lord, and the death uh, of sin has now given way to resurrection. We have the capacity to utter words of praise to you and to think thoughts uh, that uh, set our hearts, our attention and meditations upon your glory that you are so worthy of. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity, even of this season, which sets apart for many traditionally moments of our time and feasting to consider the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Truly, if God can become man and dwell with us and fulfill the Emmanuel promise to take on flesh, to enter into the human experience and thus fulfill the covenant of works that was broken by the first Adam and be able in his redemptive work to transmit, to impute to us the righteousness that we failed to earn through the first Adam and is available to us in the second through regeneration, it is all the more reason, Lord, these are all the more reasons to give you praise. Because of this, you are truly worthy of our thanks and our attention, our affections, our meditations, and our confessions. This day, as we open your scriptures, we pray that you would fill the reservoir of our praise vocabulary with more to offer up to you because you are so deserving, dear Jesus Christ. We pray also that you would bring conviction in our lives so that areas that do not reflect your glory may be put aside and shed like burdens of sin upon the altar of your word proclaimed this day. We pray that you would draw the lost to repentance and faith as the signal of Jesus Christ shines forth as a beacon of warning that there is a day of judgment to come and everyone must die and answer for their sins. And Lord, I pray with that beacon of warning would also be the beacon of hope that in Christ alone is a sufficient covering and atonement and redemption and salvation for all who would but repent and believe. And look to Christ, who is lifted up as the serpent was of old, as a curse for us, taking the punishment we otherwise deserved. We pray, Lord, as we enter a new year with the next Sunday coming up, as we bring this one to a close, that our perspective, our attention, our priorities would be refocused on proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord. And I pray that this would be true not only in our confession publicly, not only in the context of sermons here, but also, Lord, in the quietness of our own soul, in the conviction of our own spirits, and the confidence of our own walk, each of us, that you might be glorified, your kingdom advanced, and your church edified, all the while to walk in a manner worthy of our call. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a gracious opportunity, what a glorious gift we have today to worship the Lord to gather in His name, to open the Scripture, and to offer Him the praises He deserves. I encourage you to do so as we continue our worship service this morning by turning to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1 verses 1 through 7 will be our point of entry, if you will, into the Word of God this morning. And we'll use this passage to tie into themes from prior messages to develop them further, particularly in the continuing legacy of Lot, through the Moabites, and how God worked redemption in spite of all the odds against that happening. And also tie into themes of Christmas. Today is an overview message. We have a lot of scripture to cover. There's going to be a, uh, a lot of keeping up to do, but I trust that it will be worth our effort. And if you pay close attention, I think this morning we'll be overwhelmed at the reasons to praise our Lord and His glorious grace as we see threads such as I've introduced tied together in the birth and introduction of Jesus Christ in the first gospel in the first chapter. So with your Bibles open, 
Would you stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word today, and let us consider these scriptures in our hearing. This is again Matthew 1, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the Word of the Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> the aim of this morning's message is to further illustrate the redeeming power and glory of Jesus Christ and His great gospel. To further illustrate the redeeming power of Jesus Christ. We consider the redeeming power of Jesus Christ illustrated in the salvation of the Moabite Ruth, who is descended from that corrupted line of Lot. Daughters who had lineage, had sons by way of drunken incest, included the Ammonite line and the Moabite line. And that lineage, despite its corrupt legacy, nevertheless gave way to redemption in the story of Ruth, which we'll touch upon briefly today. The title of this morning's message is Damaged Goods, or an alternate title could be Unlikely Bride. And the point is this, in the term damaged goods, that's a common phrase and, uh, that sometimes refers to irreparable trauma, psychological damage because of hardship or real horrible situations that were endured, or reputation compromise, especially due to sin, immorality. Damaged goods. What makes someone damaged goods if they've experienced irreparable trauma because of some hardship in their life, something that has set them back and seems irreparable, you can't fix it, or a reputation that has sullied beyond repair. Every time you hear the name or think of the person, it's basically a byword. It's corrupted in some way, tainted reputation, damaged goods, unlikely bride. There are four examples, if you will, of damaged goods in the lineage of Jesus Christ that are offered here. The first one, which we've already considered in a prior message, is Ruth, but there are three others, Tamar, Rahab, and the wife of Uriah, who, of course, is Bathsheba. Why are we considering these unlikely brides in the line of Jesus Christ today? Well, because it ties into the glorious story of redemption, and it proves to us that nothing is beyond God's power to save. <clears throat> Ruth was not the only unlikely bride in the line of Jesus Christ. Our last message on Lot's legacy was titled, A Bitter End? If you close the message of Lot and your study of Lot right in Genesis, where we've been studying 19-ish, there, uh, it does seem to be a bitter end. But if you follow his legacy through the Moabite line, you find hope dawning upon the legacy of Lot in a surprising scenario. The answer is all in the, by all immediate indications is a resounding yes. This is a bitter end, a tragic fallout of sin. The legacy of Lot unravels in the end in fear and hopelessness, unless you keep reading. Then you follow, and as you do so, you follow his compromised line, namely the Moabites, all the way through to a Moabite named Ruth, for which an entire book of the Bible is named. Joining, by the way, the book of Esther, the only two books in the Bible named for women. 
Now, in the redemption of Ruth, we find the glories of salvation are only magnified, especially in spite of the legacy which she comes from, which was marked forever, or at least it would seem to them, by drunken incest. You see, the value of individuals and their class distinction and their hope and their you know, self-identity was so wrapped up in family lines at this time that if you were the child by way of drunken incest, you were, in fact, damaged goods, even if you were several, if not many, generations removed. Nevertheless, the glories of salvation are revealed and magnified in spite of this legacy when Christ intervenes with salvation and redemption. Thus, we go from Lot and we kind of get the wide-angle lens of Scripture zooming out and we see hope visiting even the Moabites in Ruth's account. And this morning, the lens, the wide-angle lens of Scripture, let's zoom out a little more, if you will. We zoom out further still and what do we find? We find in Matthew's lineage of Jesus himself that Ruth is not alone in this theme of redemption, visiting those who most would consider damaged goods. Ruth is not alone in this theme of redemption, visiting those who most would consider unlikely brides or damaged goods. In the lineage of Jesus himself, four women are mentioned who share this theme in common. They are the only women mentioned, incidentally, until we read of the wife of Joseph, namely Mary, in verse 16. So they are definitely highlighted. They are exclusively listed as wives among the lineage of Jesus Christ, and each one has something in common. They all have something in common. Their featured place in this lineage not only serves to magnify the glories of redemption, in spite of the legacy of drunken incest in the case of Ruth, for instance, but also the glories of redemption are magnified in spite of many other things. In the case of Tamar, abandonment, deception, and fornication. In the case of Rahab, the glories of redemption are magnified in spite of Gentile prostitution. In the case of Uriah's wife Bathsheba, in spite of adulterous murder and betrayal. Directly or indirectly, the honor of each of these women was tainted in some way. They were damaged goods, as we said according to man. Nevertheless, through them, the seed of the Messiah was secured, which would ultimately secure their own eternal hope. And I'd like you to imagine something with me this morning, which I think will illustrate this theme of redemption. Imagine each one of these women singing Amazing Grace. That song sounds all the richer on the lips of a Tamar, a Rahab, a Ruth, or a Bathsheba, does it not? Amazing Grace how sweet the sound that saved a prostitute like me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a widow by murder like me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved one in the legacy of drunken incest, an abandoned widow, a destitute outsider refugee like me. You see, that word wretch becomes so common to us that we forget that there's a real life, tragic, sinful circumstances attached to every sinner. And these women illustrate them dramatically. Here's a heading. The Savior of the world came by Tamar, by Rahab, by Ruth, and by the wife of Uriah. Those are our four main points this morning. Our heading is, The Savior of the World Came by Tamar, by Rahab, by Ruth, 
and by the wife of Uriah. Number one, by Tamar. Turn with me to Genesis 38. The Savior of the world came by Tamar. And this is my language, uh, the outline, the language of this outline is no stretch. I'm taking it word for word from the theme and the language of Matthew chapter 1. And my point I would submit to you is that these women are highlighted on purpose. And the purpose of this message is to discover why. Why is it noted? Why is it featured that the Savior of the world came by way of Tamar? Let's consider her backstory briefly. We pick up on the story of Tamar in Genesis 38. Let's begin in verse 6. Then Judah, so that name should ring a bell. Judah is important to us. He's in the line, of course, of David and of Jesus. He's also one of the tribes of Israel, one of the sons of Jacob. Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and named her, and her name, excuse me, was Tamar. But Er, uh, Judah's Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Perhaps the first thing we notice in this context here is that Tamar is a widow by judgment, not just once. Tamar is a widow because God killed her first husband because he was that wicked. Verse 8. Then Judah, so this is of course her father-in-law, said to Onan, which was her uh, husband's late husband's brother, Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Onan refused to do it. And the Bible is quite graphic in how it describes his obstinance in this regard. And what we find here is a continuing theme in Tamar's life. She is denied redemption. Why do I say that? Because when a woman was estranged or abandoned, if she was widowed, There was provision in the law of God called kinsman redeemer, where a husband would step in to redeem her station. You see, at this time, her situation would be despairing, hopeless. Abandonment was all she'd have to look forward to. Absolutely devastating circumstances, unless provision was made for her to be redeemed. And so the kinsman redeemer had an obligation to bring into his charge and even into his home a wife who had been estranged in such a way. Now, this woman, widowed by judgment, has lost her first husband due to God's uh, striking him dead. And then the second husband, quote-unquote, Onan, his brother, refuses to consummate the marriage. And as a result, what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, verse 10, and he put him to death also. Now, the second potential redeemer, the second potential husband, the kinsman redeemer, is put to death. Then Judah, verse 11, said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. What does that tell you? It tells you Judah had three sons, every one of them wretched. The first one, Ur, was killed because he was wicked. The second one, Onan, killed because he was disobedient. The third one, his dad, as messed up as Judah is at this time, as compromised as he is in his own morals, doesn't really want to give her right away because he fears that God's going to kill this kid too. Why? Because this kid, no doubt, is as wicked as the other two. He feared that he would die like his brothers, so Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Is this not a picture of destitution? Does this sound like a likely bride? No, this sounds like damaged goods. This poor, pitiful woman. Well, the story gets worse. Verse 12, In the course of time, the wife of Judah... 
Shael's daughter died and Judah was comforted. He went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And then Tamar was told, so his daughter-in-law was told that your father-in-law is going up to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's garments, verse 14, covered herself with a veil, wrapped herself up and sat in the entrance of that town, Enaim, sorry, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up. So that was her, that was supposed to be the second, you know, kinsman redeemer, but she didn't receive him. He had grown up. Judah is not true to his promise. He had not given her a third husband. And she, had, and she had not been given to him in marriage. So she's destitute. She's desperate. What does she do? Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in? And so as collateral, that he would uh, make his pledge good in this, what he thought was a prostitution arrangement. He gave her his signet cord from his staff and so forth. Well, later on, it's discovered that she's in fact pregnant. Judah's unable to track down what he thinks is his prostitute, still unaware of her identity. About three months, verse 24 after, later, after Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out, let her be burned. As she was brought out, she sent out... She sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, goes on to say she had a child, two in fact, Perez and Zerah. This woman is featured in the lineage of Jesus Christ. She's a widow by judgment multiple times. She's denied kinsman redemption. And in a last-ditch effort, she arranges to pose as a prostitute so that her father-in-law has a child by her. Does this not sound like Lot's daughters? And through this deception, that is, the line is secured for the Messiah by way of deception, where a daughter-in-law convinces her father-in-law that she's a prostitute, and he, presuming who she, that she was as much, commits fornication in this consensual act, and the legacy thereby is secured. However, this legacy, nevertheless, prominent in the history of the tribe of Judah, and it's even referenced in Ruth 4.12 in the context of the blessing of the elders in Bethlehem who exclaim and proclaim that it is a glorious thing that Ruth and Boaz are about to have a child. The Savior of the world came by this means, by way of Tamar, a widow by judgment, denied redemption, yet the lineage of the Messiah was secured. Put yourself in Tamar's shoes. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like Tamar. Now, the power of the gospel is so great that if Tamar believed, that the lineage of her however compromised relationship, however tragic and sinful her circumstances, would actually yield for her a Messiah for her own salvation, she in fact could be saved. What a powerful message indeed. And it is illustrated in this way. The fact that the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, came by these means. Second major point this morning. The Savior of the world came by way of Rahab. 
Turn to Joshua 2. Now, you remember the story, kids, don't you, in Jericho? Remember? What was unique about that city? All around was what? All around Jericho was um, a wall. That's correct, yes. A little wall or a big wall, kids? That's right. Jericho was one of the strongest, most fortified, formidable cities in the promised land. It represented a fearful obstacle to those who would invade, namely, the, pro, or the people of God into the promised land. So we pick up on the story of two men of faith, however, who have infiltrated the city in Joshua chapter 2. Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. They came into the house of a prostitute. Isn't that interesting? Well, likely... They, because of the clandestine or the spy, you know, operation going on here, a prostitute's home would be open to foreigners, let's say. So this was a way for them to actually infiltrate the city, infiltrate the city through the doorway that was open because of sin, leaving, incidentally, the city vulnerable to attack. It's interesting. Excuse me. It's interesting what's going on here. That isn't to say that they went into the house of Rahab with sinful intentions. Nevertheless, they exploited this weakness in the defenses of Jericho in their spy campaign. Verse 2, And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. The women had taken the two, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had, verse 6, But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. The first thing of note when Rahab is introduced in the account here is that she was a pagan. She dwelt in the land of Jericho and she was a prostitute. She was a woman of ill repute. She was damaged goods, as it were. Yes, she would be a highly unlikely bride to be included in the lineage of Jesus Christ. A pagan among God's enemies, Jericho, the most formidable of enemies. More than this, the most compromised of enemies, a prostitute whose home was open because of the immorality that she had pursued and so forth. But something happened to Rahab. God changed her heart, verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, quote, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Now, for context, she's talking to two spies hiding in grass on a roof in a fortified city so strong no one can enter in, and a whole uh, you know, platoon of guys out searching for them. And she says, I fear your God. I don't take refuge in this city My heart quakes before the power represented in your sovereign. What 
can account for this change. Her eyes were open. Verse 10, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites when you were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. This woman had heard the word of the Lord in the form of the exploits of the sovereign God preparing a way for his people to enter the promised land. A four-century conscripted slave people were defeating unlikely armies and they were going across on dry land because their sovereign Lord had split the sea in two and prepared a way. When she heard the word of the Lord, when she heard the gospel of the one who has the power to save, she wanted to align herself with that Savior and she repented not only of her own immorality, but of her trust in Jericho. She despised the city. This woman who was once a pagan prostitute despised what Jericho promised her. She despised the refuge of Jericho and she subverted it. And she joined in her allegiance with its soon-to-be victors, overtakers, conquerors. So she continues on this way, verse 11, And as soon as they heard it, as soon as we heard it, she says, of the news of God's work on behalf of his people, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, Yahweh, she says, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on earth beneath. And she has a request, verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord, by Yahweh, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. Verse 14, the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. And if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Who was this Rahab? We are introduced to her in our primary text this morning in the most surprising of ways. Matthew 1, verse 5, And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Just reminding you that I was reminded of it this week. Did you know that Boaz's mom was Rahab? Boaz's mother was this woman here, as far as we can tell, putting together these threads of history, of redemptive history, we see God's power to redeem. The Savior of the world came by way of Rahab, the pagan prostitute who repented and believed, who rejected the refuge of the city. And consider her, by the way, in contrast to Lot's wife. Lot's wife looked back. Why? Because all of her hopes and dreams and salvation promises were invested in Sodom. And what happened? Instantly, she received the judgment that the same judgment uh, received, uh, that the same area would receive. And she was salted. She was poisoned and sterilized and killed in that act of judgment. The total opposite in the case of Rahab. She and her family were the only ones saved that total judgment of the city when God and his people proved victorious over this city. City of God versus city of man. A one-time Gentile prostitute repents and places her faith not in the city with the highest walls in the region, not in the promise of man's defenses or what she feels secure in the natural, but no, in the testimony of the one who can split the Red Seas, save a slave people, and give them their promised land 400-some years after it's promised by the power of his sovereign hand. And she was saved. She was saved and redeemed 
the scope of her redemption so thorough that she became included, even though the world would say she's damaged goods, even though the world would say she's an unlikely bride, she became included through marriage into the line of Jesus Christ himself. Matthew 1, 5 tells us that she indeed was Boaz's mother. Again, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like Rahab. Number three, Ruth. The Savior of the world came by Tamar, by Rahab, and by Ruth. Picking up on our theme last time we were studying this, we find Ruth's story in chapter 4 of the book by the same name, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. The uh, account of Ruth is amazing. The book of Ruth is so uh, tender and glorious. And it's a reversal of the conditions of sin that plagued the land. And we see them in the book, at the end of the book of Judges. And we turn the page and we see the glorious hope in Ruth, the book of Ruth. It's incredible juxtaposition. Ruth was a widow by providence. So far we have a widow by judgment, Tamar. Now we have a widow by providence. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. And as you, re Moab, and as you recall, the reason he left was because of famine. And he went with his wife, Naomi. So they were originally Bethlehemites. Then they go, they have two sons. The sons take two daughters from the native country, Moabites. One is Orpah, one is Ruth. And eventually all three husbands die. We have three widows in this story. And one of them is a Moabite, yet she clings to Naomi and goes back to Bethlehem. Why is she going back to Bethlehem? Because there's hope of a kinsman redeemer in Bethlehem. Little did she know... Little did Naomi and Ruth know as they made that journey to Bethlehem that they were pioneering a way that would be followed by others. Who else would look for a redeemer in Bethlehem? The wise men following the star, the shepherds and the announcement of the angels, Anna and Simeon welcoming the redeemer in the temple. And spiritually speaking, all who claim Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior have followed, as so to speak, Naomi and Ruth to Redeemer, the promise of a Redeemer in Bethlehem. This is what's going on. Now, Ruth is damaged goods as well. She's a widow by providence. She's destitute. She's afflicted. She's a refugee. She comes from a corrupted line from man's accounting. Uh, as far as man's accounting is concerned, nevertheless, she finds her Redeemer. In verse 14 of chapter 3, she lay at his feet, that is, at the feet of Boaz until morning, but arose before uh, one could recognize one another, that is, Boaz rose, he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you're wearing, hold it out. He gives her six measures of barley. She takes that back as a sign of his favor to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And then Boaz gets busy about the process of redeeming Ruth as his wife. And 4.1 opens up in the gates of Bethlehem. As by note, uh, just further study, another contrast. Note where we find Lot in the gates of Sodom. Note where we find Boaz in the gates of Bethlehem. And this scene is totally different. He went up to the gate, he sat down, he gathered the elders, and he begins to negotiate the redemption price and so forth, and who's going to buy, um, and who's going to step up to the plate. Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi to the first redeemer line, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. 
Testimony to Ruth as an unlikely bride as damaged goods is the first Redeemer's response. I can't redeem it for myself. Originally, it was just land. He was like, oh, yeah, I'll be all about that. But then when it, the fine print, oh, it comes with a Moabite you got to marry. He says, ah, lest I impair my own inheritance, take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And Boaz did as much. They were married, verse 21, or verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah, excuse me, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And note verse 12, 12, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. You see already that people were recognizing unlikely redemption. In this blessing proclaimed upon Ruth and Boaz, they reference the offspring of Tamar, even Perez, who were also in the line of Jesus Christ. So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife. And you know the rest of the story. The people again exclaimed the women to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. The Lord had provided a Redeemer. May His name be renowned, and may His name be renowned in Israel. And oh, the name of the Bethlehem Redeemer, it would be renowned. In shadowy form, in prefigure form here, Boaz received some significance, but he would soon be eclipsed by the ultimate Redeemer found in Bethlehem, Jesus Christ, the Son of His Son of His Son, etc. Verse 18, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Abinadab, Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed. Kids, Obed fathered Jesse, Jesse fathered David. Very good. So here we have a widow by providence. And we have these themes in the book of Ruth. It opened with a famine, but soon gives way to harvest the barley harvest, when she meets a Redeemer. It started with three widows, but it gives, way to, it gives way to the story of a kinsman bride. It started with death. Three husbands are killed, or they die because of life's hardships. It gives way to life. Obed, the serving and worshiping one, would be born. It, gives, it starts with barrenness. Naomi lamenting that she cannot bear sons for her widowed daughter-in-laws. Because of her old age and the hopelessness of her situation, gives way from barrenness to fruitfulness, closing with this lineage, which tracks the, the uh, seed of the Messiah, even through a Moabitress, if you will, through Ruth herself. It, it uh, starts with an outcast, Ruth, with a hopeless and dangerous too. There's some concern for her life, and we read that in the text, to the covering of a covenant family. It starts from a refugee, who is estranged and despised, and it ends with one who receives the covering of a covenant household. It starts with death in the end of the book of Judges on the threshold of the Levite when his concubine is killed, but then you turn the page over to the book of Ruth and there's a proposal on the threshing floor and redemption intervenes in the worst of circumstances. A widow by providence, Moabite lineage, and Bethlehem kinsmen. This is the message. And that leads us to our final example this morning. The Savior of the world came by way of the wife of Uriah. For this final example, turn to 2 Samuel 11. <clears throat> As you're turning there, 
remember our song that we're putting on the lips of these women. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like Ruth. We have one more that falls into that category this morning to highlight, and this would be Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. You remember the story, do you not? We pick up on it in 2 Samuel eleven fourteen. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Job was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. So this was the husband of the wife of adultery that David had taken, Bathsheba. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messengers, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, the king's anger rises, so on and so forth. He continues with these instructions. Then we see what happens. When the wife of Uriah, verse 26, heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and little wonder. Why? Because he made the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, a widow by murder. We have a widow by judgment, a widow by providence, and a widow by murder now. Damaged goods. These unlikely brides in the line of Christ. Now, Bathsheba is not listed by name in Matthew chapter 1. Instead, just to make the staggering picture of redemption all the more clear by implication, she's listed, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, as if to highlight the unlikely circumstances through which God was able to work the miracle of redemption. You know, in our, the way we recount and record history, we tend to gloss over the embarrassing parts. When we celebrate our heroes, a lot of times we fail to mention the darkest elements of the soul or the most embarrassing or wicked or immoral things that they did in their life. No, we choose to focus on the highlights. But in the case of the scriptures and in the case of David and the Uriah incident, the opposite is true. And why is this? Because the Lord, in recording His Word, wanted to make it known that the Savior of the world came by unlikely means, and in so doing, proved Himself the greatest Redeemer of all. You see, Tamar needed a kinsman Redeemer, and everyone that was offered failed her. And Bathsheba lost her husband by murder, and so she joined the courts of the king through these sinful horrific circumstances. You see, Ruth was destitute, Moabite, and had only a horrific future to look forward to, dangerous, likely to be an outcast until the end of days. And Rahab, what hope was there for a pagan prostitute among the people of God? But in each case, a sufficient redeemer, a redeeming plan, a redeeming hope was found for them. And thus, they picture again the redeeming power and glory of Jesus Christ, even as they were chosen to carry forth his family line. She's not just the widow by murder, but she's queen by adultery. In chapter 11, verse 2, how did this whole thing start? It happened one late afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking on the roof of his house, the scriptures say. And he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was beautiful. Of course, he sends, he inquires of the woman, he sends his messenger, and David takes her, he lays with her, and 
she returned to her house, the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, verse 5, I am pregnant. This whole thing, this whole incident begins with David's adultery, widow by murder, queen by adultery, and yet she bears a covenant son. And chapter 12, after their first child is afflicted by the Lord and eventually dies. And chapter 12, verse 15, the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and he became sick. David intercedes for this child's life, but to no avail, the child is taken by the Lord. A sovereign God afflicts the child and takes in partial judgment, takes in this disciplinary action, David's first son by adultery by Bathsheba. However, verse 24, when David comforted, then David comforted his wife after these events had taken place, we find Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And note this phrase, and the Lord loved him. The Lord loved Solomon. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like Bathsheba. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that set his love on Solomon. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. So we close this message. Let us go to application. How do these stories relate to us? Well, there's a number of levels that we can consider. First of all, we've mentioned this. The context, the culture of Sodom seems to be a goal that our nation and our society is headed towards. This flagrant celebration of sin, this parading in the streets of immorality, is only seems to be increasing in our days. And the morals of the end of the book of Judges also sound familiar. Quote, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Furthermore, the demise of Lot and the shamefulness of the end, the doom of Jericho and the destruction or the destitution of Ruth and the exploitation and betrayal of Uriah's family and the despair of Tamar are not experiences totally lost in our day. That is to say, the Bible pictures in these dramatic illustrations affects that our experience in our day right now. Another way to say it, the culture we are living in will and is producing quote-unquote damaged goods. Damaged goods. Recently I referenced a book by Abigail Schreier, an unbeliever who nevertheless has identified at least a kernel of truth in this title. The transgender, uh, uh, the the Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. That's the name of her book. I've listened to several interviews by Abigail Schreier. The book is The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. The point that she makes is one of the trajectories of our culture is popularizing uh, this self-identity of an opposite gender so much so that you can secure you know, permanently body-altering drugs and so forth that would mark you sterile and later in life as you regret this trend and this crazed decision, it's too late. You are already, from the worldly perspective, quote-unquote, damaged goods. And this, this is just one example in our society of the permanent physical effects and long-standing fallout of the horrific immorality we are entertaining and celebrating as a culture. Church, things are about to get really messy. We are about to enter into an age, if present trends continue, where we will be called to disciple amongst a people, a nation, a society, a culture so degraded that damaged goods are everywhere. Can God redeem in such a time and in such circumstances? 
Yes. How do I know? Because the line of Jesus Christ came by Tamar, by Rahab, by Ruth, and by Bathsheba. All unlikely brides, all damaged goods as it were, to one degree or another by the world's accounting, but nevertheless trophies of grace, illustrating the redeeming power and glory of Jesus Christ. Now we are living in a time where we had better be busy and thinking and praying about how to minister to damaged goods. Because even in the practical, experiential areas of life, it's going to be an increasing reality around us. Turn to pages like I have turned you to today to gain hope, help, wisdom, and courage, and boldness to magnify and glorify the redeeming power and glory of Jesus Christ, even if we live a little closer to Sodom these days than we have in years past. So that's one application. What appears to us damaged goods, in fact, may be God's miracle of redemption in the making. As we turn back to our main text today, I want you to notice something. In Matthew 1, verse 17, the lineage concludes with the following. Let me back up to 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Verse 17. So all the generations from Adam to David were 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations from the deportation to Babylon, uh, of, uh, to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And then is introduced the Christmas story. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce, divorce her quietly. You see, there was a time when Mary appeared to Joseph as damaged goods, as an unlikely and unworthy bride. But there was something underneath this circumstance, as man judged it, that he was not realizing, but was brought to his attention by the revelation of the word of God. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Son of who? Son of David. Oh, you mean David, who took a wife of adultery by killing Uriah, and nevertheless a covenant son was born? Yes, a God big enough to bring redemption even through the line of David, as corrupt as it was. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That is the key. He will save his people from their sins. We ask ourselves again, the question we opened this sermon with, why are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah listed in the lineage of Jesus Christ? Because he is the one who will save his people from their sins, and these sins that are connected to the legacy of these women are quite dramatic, are they not? And yet Jesus was powerful to save. How do we know? Because they are in the redemptive line of Jesus Christ. And even in the experience of Joseph, we gather this much at least. Things are not always as they appear. In the case of Mary and Joseph, that which appeared to him at first as damaged goods, in fact, was a miracle of the Holy Spirit. It was redemption in the making by the very word of God. Though in the case of Jesus and Mary, Sin was not the issue. Nevertheless, God's purposes were mysterious at first, but were only magnified in due course. And that is the same way he worked and those who preceded them. He will save his people from their sins. Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, is the ultimate kinsman redeemer. 
and we are damaged goods. This is the final point of application. And further, turn with me to Revelation 19. There is a reason why the Bible calls Jesus Christ our bridegroom. Why? Because it's language that recalls the redeeming language of these stories in part from the Old Testament. There's a reason why we are identified as the bride of Christ. Because we can relate to Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba in that we, in our sin, are damaged goods. We are the unlikely bride of Jesus Christ. But notice something happens. In Revelation 21, it's pictured in consummate form, verse 1. Then I saw, John speaking of his revelation, a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. John is conflating images here. But that holy city that he sees, it can be said, is you and I. And it can be said that this bride has been prepared for her husband. The legacy of drunken incest, the legacy of adultery and widowhood by judgment and so on and so forth has all been washed away by the blood of the kinsman redeemer. And all that remains is the glorious bride adorned for her husband, as it were, Jesus Christ. And I heard a loud voice, he continues, verse 3, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Kids, a question for you. What name for Jesus Christ goes with that promise? The dwelling place of God is with man. What name of Jesus Christ fulfills that promise, kids? God with us is what it means. Does anyone know the name? Emmanuel is correct. Jesus, the Emmanuel, has made it possible that the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself uh, will be with them as their God. And notice what is a distant uh, memory now in verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, crying, or pain, for the former things have passed away. When the ultimate kinsman redeemer comes, the crying, the pain, the mourning, and the tears of Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba are washed away if they place their faith in the Messiah to come, in whose lineage they were included, if they place their faith in Him. He has the power to do so. And as we continue to read, we see more and more added to this picture, verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I am turning a Rahab, a one-time pagan prostitute, into a privileged bride in the line of Jesus Christ. I am making all things new. I am taking a Tamar, a three times denied redemption, a woman who has nothing, uh, places no hope for her future except in deceiving her father-in-law and so forth. And I am washing away that sin and making all things new. And through her line, I will bring my Messiah. And he said, write this down. We continue in the scripture. For these words are trustworthy and true. And verse 6, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. And then verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, the liars, their portion will be in the lake uh, that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You see, all these things once marked us 
in our sin as damaged goods. Nevertheless, the scriptures promise that Jesus Christ, the ultimate kinsman redeemer, will save his people from their sins. Jesus Christ, he's the ultimate groom, and we, the least worthy of all brides, are prepared for our husband by his redeeming glory and power. His blood washes away our tears, our death, our mourning, our crying, our pain. But furthermore, his blood washes away our cowardice, our faithlessness, detestable things, our murder, our sexual immorality, our sorcery, our idolatry, and our lying. All those are outside the gates. And those who are in Christ Jesus, redeemed by their bridegroom, and washed by his blood, now are a bride adorned for her husband. So in closing of this year, in closing of this message, I submit to you, this is why Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah are listed in the lineage of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who came by way of them to prove that he can save anyone by his miraculous power. Let us close in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for the glorious hope that is found in your scriptures, and we confess that it's found only there. We join the confession of Rahab in linking our fortunes to Yahweh, his word, and his power. We pray that we would be counted among your people, and we know there's only one way to do this, to confess our sins, to repent, and to believe. For those who have done as much, I pray that we would hear those words afresh in our mind as we sing them. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That we would see in Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, and Bathsheba, the depths of sin and wickedness, and also your glorious power to save. And all that we might be encouraged, emboldened, and strengthened to be about the task of announcing this to others. Lord, I pray this year, as darkness seems to enclose about us, that nevertheless, what Dave preached to us last week from Isaiah 8 and 9 would be true of us. That the darkness that seems to be encroaching all around would give way to the commanding and compelling light. That we in our hearts would be so moved by the joy of our salvation, the promise of our Redeemer, and the rule and reign of Christ our Lord, that our hearts would be full of gladness and that once condemned us to anguish and, and a bondage and slavery would give way to liberty in Jesus Christ our Lord as we go forth to champion the great gospel that saved wretches like us. Lord, I pray that this would be our banner and that you would equip us to be faithful this year. And we pray, Lord Jesus, as long as you tarry, that you would find in this place and throughout the globe a faithful church, not glorifying themselves, but leaning on you, our Savior and Lord, our ultimate kinsman redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.